John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed omnibus addenda volume 23 entry 206.lv2733 certificate number 48966 change of gauge we're going all the way back because uh this is from a year ago when did we do that show a year ago literally a year ago literally a year ago wait a minute a year and two weeks ago so September 3rd, 2020. So it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. It was just a year and more. Brian, apparently having read the show recently, um, found a better way into it. No offense, because I enjoyed the show. Sure, thanks. But have you ever heard of the peanut war? The peanut war? Brian brought the peanut war to my attention. And this really is, I think, how we, if we could do it again, we would. this is how you would do a change of gauge omnibus. There was a, um, the citizens of Erie, Pennsylvania in the 1850s, loved being on the border between New York Gauge Track and Pennsylvania Gauge Track because for Breezewood reasons. Sure, everybody had to stop and get a hamburger. Everybody would would get out and uh, and buy peanuts. I guess Erie had a had a just a bustling peanut seller industry that we got... Think, we think of that as a Georgia crop. But is that what you would give train travelers in the Northeast in the 1850s? Well, they're like tiny little sack lunches. That don't go bad. Do you think 1850s comedians were like, what is the deal with railroad peanuts? They got these tiny little bags. I mean, if you think about peanuts as a baseball food, as a, as a, uh, like a cowboy bar food. It was probably the, the first crunchy food, right? The first ever crunchy food. That's what it said on the, on the little bag. No, they, people were frying potatoes before that. I'm not deep, like not, but they didn't have chips and stuff, right? Like all the things we like that just crack in your mouth. You know, they didn't have any of that. They were eating soft foods, John. And peanuts were like, hey, this is a little bag of, of something hard. What a, what a taste and feel sensation for my palate. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that people had been eating nuts before the 1850s. That's probably true. But as a snack? Are there other ways to eat nuts? As, a, as, as an entree. As a full meal? You can get nut loaf if you're a vegan instead of your, instead of your steak. I have a picture of someone in 15th century sitting down with a knife and a fork and a, and a nut and just... A single bean like Donald Duck? <laughs> uh, okay, so... So, so Erie loved this, and so they were, they were fighting against the standardization of the, of the gauges, but, um, you know, the... T- the it was a nightmare for the railroads because you couldn't run the same trains. You'd have to, people have to get off in Erie and then get back on. And so you had misconnections. The same with today where a plane has to wait for the incoming right. plane or else six passengers are not going to be able to go to Cabo or whatever. So it turned into a whole thing, including the city having to swear in 150 special police constables. Um, to, to, to tamp down the, the peanut war? Uh, to actually— the riots? I think they actually started like sabotaging railroad bridges because um, the city council actually enacted ordinances saying, no, the railroads can't, the, the new tracks can't pass our city streets. And so, you know, people started ripping up tracks the railroads had their own cops shooting at those people. The town had its own cops shooting at those people. Wow. So, yeah, I mean. You can't fight the railroad though. I mean, this is the plot of 40% of all Westerns. 
Yeah, is Erie, Erie, Pennsylvania losing? Yeah, are you going to? Are who's going to triumph? You, the or small a, farmer, a peanut seller, <laughs> or the railroad? The town of Erie? There's, no, there's two Americas. There's peanut seller America and railroad America, <laughs> and peanut seller always loses. I agree that that's a great anecdote, but I take issue with the idea that that I should have gotten into the show with that story. The show that's just been, a fine. story. The show could have been called the Peanut War. Yeah, instead of that's a very omnibus title. Exactly. That's that's all I'm saying. Yeah, the Peanut War. And I'm, you know, I'm just looking at a Wikipedia page here. I've, oh, wow, no, there's, there's actually good stuff. Um, the, the governor of Pennsylvania sticks up for Erie, but everybody in other states around just finds this annoying and sides with the railroad. In fact, the U.S. representative from Ohio, Edward Wade, suggested that Pennsylvania's nickname be changed to the Shylock State. Oh, boof. Whoa. Hello. Hey. Had to go there. Um, I guess that was okay at the time. Sure. Let's call Rampton and see what he thinks of it. Again, that's a show that will air in three to four weeks. <laughs> it's my new favorite thing. I'm always going to fo- foreshadow shows on the You're, you're time addenda. traveling. Entry 424.JB0412. Certificate number 37914. The Erica Typewriter. We got two belated notes on this show. I guess, you know, not everybody listens to the show in perfect synchronization. Right. Although we try be... and convince advertisers of that fact and that they should <laughs> continue to advertise on the show, uh, even a year or two after it airs and advertisers are very dumb. Well, it would make the addenda show a lot easier if everybody would listen at the same time, send in all their annoying emails at the same time, then we could do the addenda show and then we could forget about say the Eric typewriter. <laughs> What's interesting is that sometimes all of the people writing in with corrections uh, are writing in about your shows. We've had episodes where I'm like, well, no one has anything to say about my shows, and I'm always jealous. And then when they write in and it's all they want to talk about is my shows, I'm like, what's the big deal? Like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. What the heck? Stop, I, did, I did my best. Stop nitpicking me. <laughs> so you're never... What would you like them to write in about? Hmm. Recipes? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I like it when they write in and have complaints about your shows and oh, praise see. for I my see. shows. So keep that in mind. Because I think what's happening is you com- you complain about not getting enough mail, and then the pendulum tips, and people are like, poor John needs Poor John needs, needs mail. me to tell him that he did something wrong about So that. remember, send in mean things about my shows and praise for John's uh, bloated, factually suspect shows. <laughs> That's right. That will keep me in an emotional equilibrium, <laughs> and I'll be much easier for Ken to work. At one point during the Erica show, apparently we uh, you speculated and maybe, um, yeah, you speculated about how languages with non-Latin alphabets manage typewriters. Right. And we had two different interesting contributions, belatedly. Um, this is what I love. We were talking about Cyrillic in particular, like how would you approximate Cyrillic on a Latin on keyboard? On a Latin keyboard. Uh, and in fact... In the early days of typewriters, Russians – see, I think this is something that came up when computer keyboards existed and ASCII existed, but Unicode did not exist. So the easiest way for computers to handle text was with the ASCII characters, which were limited to 256 mostly Latin alphabet right. characters. Um Maybe this predates that and goes back to typewriters. I don't know. You know, the typewriter, it's much easier to just, you know, sure. draw something new on the key and put in a new, what do you hammer. call it? The hammer. There you go. Um, the Russians called their pre-Unicode approximation of Cyrillic using ASCII Volya, Volapuk, which is actually something we've discussed on Omnibus because it's a joking reference to an Esperanto-like artificial language oh. earlier called Volapuk. It's kind uh-huh. of a, an even more niche Esperanto. Um, and that's their their ASCII. They use like, that as their as their Cyrillic. And uh, how, how do they keyboard do keyboard approximation? Well, I'm looking at it here. It, it appears that um, you can't really make a backwards R by just adding a. In some cases, they paren. just use the they just use the likely letter. You know, if you want to make that letter that looks like a lowercase b, you can use a six or a lowercase b. To make the one that looks like a delta, you can use a d. Um, the backward n, the what is that? Uh, it's an you know h is n. Am I remembering this right? An n is. Oh, they. Oh, <laughs> this is funny. They either use a. Forward N for a backwards N, 
which is confusing, or you use an I slash I. Oh, yeah, right, sure, I slash I. To make the thing that looks like, uh, yeah, you use a combination, like you use greater than, pipe, less than, I to make that thing that looks like yeah. two curves and a bar down the middle. So they, they build them. The R, the backward R, the ya is just an R, or you can say, you know, because their R is P, so you don't need P. You can use... Um, Slash capital. Some of them are numbers. Nine one. Oh, a nine one looks like a backwards R. Yeah, it does. Right. So they would they would just kind of approximate the shapes. No, a nine. Okay, nine one. Right. You see, you see what's going on there. Yeah, right? I do. Um, and somebody else, uh, Josh, wanted us to know how Japanese worked originally on keyboard devices. Oh wow, I never would have guessed there was a there was a way. They um there's a Japanese informal, you know, tech-centered Japanese alphabet called Romaji, which is how you use Latin or Roman characters to phonetically represent the two Japanese alphabets, hiragana and katakana, which you can then use as stand-ins for the third Japanese alphabet, kanji, the Chinese originated characters. Um they uh so Japanese keyboards basically look like QWERTY English characters where each key has a Roman letter from our alphabet and then a hiragani character too. And you can choose whether you're gonna which input method you're gonna use. If you use hiragani, you just you you know you, uh, you, you push touch the those keys. Caps lock or whatever. Um or if you you know and it's um on early devices, it was actually predecessor of what we now think of as predictive text where you would type out a word phonetically and this is on a computer not a typewriter yeah this would be very difficult on a typewriter and it will show you a list of options and then you select the you you highlight the one that you were trying to type and then move on to the next one and the computer will try to put the more common kanji alternative at the top of the list and so forth so you know japanese researchers were working on predictive text long before we were on early um, phones. Do you remember when you could use the one through nine to type letters? Yeah. You know, a you type a the the two twice, and it would be a well, B or yeah, three times, the and you get T nine language. T nine. I and I never knew what that was called. I actually wrote a, a, a whole series of reports about the Bonnaroo Festival for uh, for CMJ Magazine using a T9 phone. Because you didn't have a laptop. I didn't have a laptop, or and there were no smartphones. So I sat and wrote, you know, reviews of the the Hold Steady and um, and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs just using my little flip phone. Apparently in Japanese, it's, it's easier to spell out a word phonetically much faster than in English. There, I guess there's fewer phonetic... Common, there's fewer things to choose between. But you'd have to know enough of the Latin alphabet. You'd have to know it well enough to know what phonetic the sounds of the Latin letters were. No, they, they, this one does not use... This one is using hiragani, hiragana oh, oh, characters so or symbols. So you hit... Instead of getting a B by hitting the two twice, you get key, uh-huh. for example. Um, and so this is like the fastest way of text entry in Japan. So they're really, really good at it still. And then there's an improved version that's even faster where instead of clicking the number two a certain number of times to get to the to get to the one you want, you know, do you want ka, ke, ki, ko, or ku, basically, you hit it and then you flick it in the du- appropriate direction. Oh. So you hit the ka key and then you you flick, flick it in a different direction to get ka, ke, ki, ko, or ku. I guess the order would be different. Um, and... This you can actually do this faster than, or as fast as you can type on a normal keyboard. So to this day, Japan is full of young people who would rather communicate that way than with a, a qwerty like keyboard. Futurelings will know all about this because whatever their appendages are, it will be much easier for them to type their their language of squid ink by well, I mean, like this kind of flickety flick. Well, we have like, you know, we, we use eight to 10 fingers to type and we've got 26 letters. The problem is that we, there's not enough. If you have as many um, digits as you have characters, right? it's super easy. The home, then the home key is everything. All, all you need is, um, you know, 26 tentacles and you can be 
the world's fastest typist. Sure, 16 tongues. Or fewer letters. You either need fewer letters or more appendages. How many, uh, how difficult would it be to, for us to come up with a new Esperanto that only has 10 letters? You could do it, right? I, I mean, mean, as long as you're not trying to represent our language, yeah, it's easy enough. I mean, you could probably do it with our language. How how hard? I mean, you know. I mean, Hawaiian only has, what, 12 or 13 yeah. sounds? Early computer programmers did an amazing amount of stuff with, with you know, 100 commands, 100 words. I feel like we could ditch some of the letters we have now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we if we didn't have Q, how you, many vowels you, you, do you can we make need? a workaround. How many vowels do you really need? I mean, Hawaiian has all the vowels, but then they only have seven consonants. Right. So H, K, L, M, N, P, and W, apparently. So, I mean, yeah, the, the, the Hawaiians are two away. The Hawaiians either need to evolve two more digits mm-hmm. or... Use their nose and their tongue. Or their feet, I guess. Or their feet. You, you got your five... Elbows. You got your, your, two elbows. But you're already using your five figures on the homework. Are you saying you have some kind of paddles on the side of your computer that you can hit with your elbow? No, you do that thing where, you know, like if you were, if you're like a conga player and then you put you put an elbow down and that doesn't save time. It's got to be already under the the appendage you want to use. Yeah, so it's like you sit in a typewriter armchair and each of your elbows has its own big paddle. A and E. I mean, the conga thing would be cool because what you lose in speed you would make up for in ritmo yeah that's right taboo rhythms entry 746.is2903 certificate number 31247 the mafking cadet corps you said you like it when my shows get nitpicked yeah well this might be one of the more annoying nitpicks in the history of Okay, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm sitting in my my typewriter chair and ready to hear it. Mike, uh, who is a frequent addenda nitpicker, pointed out that in this episode I said that ships don't have clocks. I think we were talking about Mary Poppins for some reason. Right, ships don't have clocks, you said, famously. My, it's on my tombstone. <laughs> ships don't have clocks. Uh, the uh, I said they had bells instead, and I said, nine bells, time for dinner. This outraged Mike. Because on a ship, <laughs> that's right. Permission to come I'm, aboard, I'm typing you Captain off. Kirk. <laughs> uh, on a ship, there are eight different watches of three hours each. A watch is um, wait, is that right? That equals twenty-four. One, two, checks out. Three, four, five, six. Oh no, there's wait. How does this work? Oh, the watches are variable lengths. Apparently, first well, watch would be ten to midnight. The middle watch being all night long is. Midnight to 4 a.m. The morning watch is 4 to 8. Forenoon goes till noon. Then afternoon goes to 4 p.m. The first dog watch and the second dog watch. For some reason, they're shorter. Most of the watches are... Oh, no, it's 8. So all the watches are 4 hours, except there's there's two sections of watch between 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. And I don't really know. Oh, it's because of dinner. Sure. That way you can stagger who's eating Early dinner, dinner, late dinner. Okay. Just like on a cruise. So there's... But was that also true at midnight? Seemed like there was a short watch at midnight, too. No, they were all four hours. I I just wasn't good at reading 24-hour clocks. Oh, and so if if most of these watches are four hours long, you turn over a 30-minute hourglass and ring a number of bells so people know how far into the watch you are. You know, one bell is 30 minutes into the watch, two bells is... An hour into the watch. And obviously, if a watch is four hours long, you will never get to more than eight bells. So when I said nine bells time for dinner, that was just ludicrous. That's crazy. Just the idea that you would ring nine bells. Come on. Insane. You'd be doing it to drive people crazy. I think it's just, I think it. Uh, we should just end the show. No, come on, Ken. I've got your back. I think we can recover from this. But yeah. we, we apologize for the implication that you could ever have nine bells. On a ship. Yeah, although, I mean, there's always somebody that's loco. What about somebody that's breaking all the rules? Like just a crazy captain who's like, you know what? I mean, nine bells means it's ice cream Friday. (laughs) Look, Ahab really was serious about a lot of the rules of the of the ocean but uh, but he violated some of the codes there toward the end is that your take on ahab <laughs> he's serious about some of the rules of the ocean but 
I mean, he sank his ship in pursuit of a of a private. Yeah, ultimately, after after many years of successful uh, whaling, of reliable Quaker whale hunting. Yeah, it was it was only later that he started to lose lose his uh, lose the grip a little bit. That's true of many Quakers. Nixon. Yep. Ahab. Right. They all uh, do so David well. David Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He used to be so nice yeah, to uh, everybody. To, loved he used him. to be so nice to Tina and uh, Chris, and now what happened? Yeah, went off the rails. They don't even talk to him anymore. Well, he's you know he went off in search of that whale. Entry five zero one dot one C one three one two certificate number five two two four six the Fresnel lens. This might have been our most addendized show ever, and it's Is that a, right? and it's a you show, so you should be happy about that. I am, as long as everyone's really appreciative and think no, that the show was amazing. They're all correct. Dang it! No, no, I'm, they're not actually. Um, for 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 some reason, many people wanted to tell us about more modern uses of Fresnel. Oh, they are lenses. used in, in a lot of applications. I I've heard. Yeah, Adam says. I think we kind of implied this, but Adam says they're used in turn signals. James says they're using those blinking orange construction lights. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all Fresnel lenses. The interesting one, I think, um, Brett points out that they are used in most VR headsets. Oh, of course. Because, you know, you can't just... VR headsets, I guess I had never considered this. They're not... The eye is not just looking at a screen because the eye would not have the illusion of looking into the distance. You sure, need, you're looking deep into it. You need a lens to give you the illusion that the eye is focusing on infinity, basically. And the most common kinds of lenses used for that are Fresnel lenses. And you can still see, I guess, the circular rings in your... I was playing with my dad's Samsung Odyssey the other day. You can still see the circular rings of those lenses and some weird kind of artifacts from bright lights that are caused by, you know... Yeah, right. The the, the, the light source punching through the lens. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some, what, achromatic aberrations, weird coloring effects... So, yeah, your artificial uh, world, porn world or whatever you're looking at, that's a Fresnel lens. You're looking through the, through the Fresnel lens at your artificial porn world, as Ken says. Andrew points out that you can print your own Fresnel lenses with a 3D printer now. It had not occurred to me that you could use translucent or transparent resins in a 3D printer, but I, I guess there's no reason why not. Well, you see them all the time. Th- I think we talked about this on the show, that these are the things, the little magnifying glasses that come in magna- in, uh, in magazines and... I found one the other day in a little sleeve that was like a pocket magnifier that was meant to slip into your wallet, like it's the size of a credit card. Is this for the elderly? I yeah. Think. You pull it out, and all of a sudden, you can um, you read the fine print. Have you ever seen one of those uh, Oxford English dictionaries that where they, oh, they the, condensed it by putting four pages on each page, and then it comes with a little magnifying glass in the case? I love it so much. Do it's, you have one? I do have one, and it's actually not the most up-to-date way to get a condensed OED if you want to have a paper copy, but I just can't. But you love it so I can't much. get rid of it because it comes with a little magnifying glass. Do you ever consult it? I do. Right now, my eyes are good enough that I don't need the magnifying glass. Oh, my God. I hate you so much. Which is good because I think my kids have lost the magnifying glass. Yeah. Uh, You're still eligible to fly a fighter plane, although you might, you, might, you might be aging out. I'm losing it a little bit. My son was reading some sign. He was like, you can't read that. Or, you know, some drive-through menu. You can't read that? But then we pulled up, and he was absolutely wrong about what he had told me it said. So <laughs> I was a little bit Take vindicated. That precocious teen. At some point during the Fresnel lens entry, we uh, you got what's her name? I don't want to say. I guess we can say Alexa because she doesn't respond respond to. That. Oh, I unplugged her the other day. I was doing. Yeah. A, so I've been interviewing my mom for a podcast I'm doing for my Patreon about the what it was like to be a woman in the computer business in the 60s. And you kept saying the C word. And I was like, so when you... And what, also computer. What was the first computer you used? And the and Alexa was like, the first computer was ENIAC. And I'm like, yeah, shut up. So anyway, mom, and she was like, well, the computers... And she just... Alexa just couldn't shut up, so I went over and unplugged her and hucked her into the yard. Dave, Dave, I'm starting to feel myself go. <laughs> Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Daisy... <laughs> During that show, we mentioned something about the age of discovery, and uh, Alexa butted in to tell us it was three years old, that the age of discovery was three. The age of discovery was three. And I think we thought that was kind of fun in a Lewis Carrollian way. Right. Is, is my vague memory of it. But uh, Neil points out that it was almost certainly, Alexa was almost certainly referring to the Paramount Plus hit Star Trek Discovery. 
which is in fact in its third season, three years old. So when you say the age of discovery to Alexa, it assumes because you own Alexa that you're a huge Star Trek nerd, right? And have some questions about Star Trek timelines, right? How, how long has Age of Discovery been? Oh, thank you. Like if you say the age of Deep Space Nine, I guess that's what Alexa should say, right? But that's not what Alexa should say about the age of discovery. No. But three, I think we've decided is the is the canonical answer. That's the age. Discovery is still wetting the bed, probably. You mentioned it. We're still going through. Oh, this is more Fresnel Lens stuff. Oh, we got more Fresnel Lens okay, stuff. Okay, drop it on me. You mentioned something about, uh, you know, if there's two different lenses on two different lighthouses at different um, distances, you could use the parallax between them to line up a ship, you know, so that they would center ships in channels. Right. Um, with two different lighthouses at different distances from the right from the approaching ship. And uh, Dave, who lives here in Seattle, pointed out that you can see one of these on the First Avenue South Bridge, which I drove across to get here today. Go on. Not for cars. That would be weird. Right. But uh, this is for ships in, for, in the for, Duwamish. For tugboats going, yeah, going up the Duwamish there, you can actually see, I guess, two of those reflective thingies. I don't know if they're actually... Illuminated? Lit. I, they might just be reflectors, yeah. but they're on two separate towers that tugs can line up to get that parallax effect and not smash into the side of the Duwamish River. Because if that bridge goes, West Seattle's, in, <laughs> West Seattle's just done. Oh, that's Yeah, that's basically like 300,000 people that will just start eating each other. West Seattle will become a FEMA site in like <laughs> 20 minutes if any tugboat hits the First Avenue Bridge. My very favorite note we got on this episode is from, sorry, sorry, all you other people who sent in those crap Look, comments. Look, those have all been great notes, and I, I'm going to pick one of your notes to be my favorite. Each better than the last. But we heard from Nicholas, who uh, is a, he lives apparently in Ann Arbor and is a huge fan of the, uh, of the lighthouses of his region of, of the United States. Great, great mid, mid-nation Lighthouses. More lighthouses there than in any other Midwestern state I can think of. More than Iowa. Sure. More than Thinking about Ohio. The li- more than Nebraska. Of of uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma. I, I, they're more in Michigan. More in Michigan for sure. Uh, you apparently mentioned something I'd forgotten, which is that famous '90s poster of the of the wave crashing over the lighthouse in northern France. Right. You know, the wave is just coming around it. Yeah, and there's a little man standing at the standing in the, the doorway, in the window. Yeah. So Nicholas sent us the story of that man. Oh. I guess uh, he sent me a link, and you should look this up. The lighthouse is called La Jumont, and uh, uh, there's some kind of British TV show, or at least the host had an irritating. Scottish accent, where could, he then could be any show. <laughs> yeah, it's it's any uh, any Twitch streamer at this point. Uh, he gets on a helicopter and reunites the guy who took that the photographer who took that picture, apparently a Frenchman named Guichard, with the lighthouse keeper himself. Um, <laughs> Was that just a? Just a coincidence, the lighthouse keeper was out there scraping yeah. barnacles off, and he was like, what's that helicopter doing it's here? It's even worse. There's a terrible storm. Guichard wants an amazing picture because, you know, the, these it's it's not uncommon in the Bay of Biscay for these Finisterre lighthouses to get these just amazing... Super waves. Super waves just crashing all over them. So that's what you sign up for if you're a lighthouse keeper there. Guichard sees the weather coming and goes out in a helicopter to try to get a picture much like this. Um, and the, <laughs> the lighthouse keeper hears the helicopter... And is like, wait, what's going on? Is this a rescue? There's a storm. And he comes out to check out what the helicopter sound is and then almost gets killed by the amazing photogenic wave oh, wait, that, that washes over the White House. That the was a real moment of, like, I always thought it was that the guy came out and then ran back in because he knew what was happening. That was actually a, a surprise moment? Yes. He, <gasps> the only reason that guy is out there, the last place he should be in with waves like that crashing over his lighthouse is out on that... It, it, Framed in that door, but he heard the helicopter and was like, Zutalo, what is happening? <laughs> you would think he would just look out the window. He didn't have to like open the door and come fully out onto the wow. Lighthouses just don't have enough windows. I mean, yours is made of glass and dreams. Sure. But most lighthouses just have, you know, a few little windows. And in this case, he just popped his head up in the door just in time to get caught <laughs> by a photographer. Wow. And uh, so the, this Scottish TV host... Uh, and they'd never met. They had never met it, unless you count that little Tinder moment. <laughs> so the Scottish TV host gets the photographer to sign for the keeper a, uh, a print of the famous 
picture that he unbe- unbe- you know unknowingly or with little warning appeared in. And did the and keeper had the keeper seen this? Oh yeah, poster many no, times. He knows he's famous. He just has never met the photographer wow. who uh, who probably made millions on his risky job. The interview is not awkward. You'd think the guy would be like. You, right. you are uh, oppressing me. Ask you, know? you. You are taking advantage of my low-paying maritime job. But uh, they all get along very well. Um, That's wonderful. So look for the um, look for the video by the kids. Sorry, the kid should see this, which I guess is maybe it's just an internet channel. Oh no, like no, it's it. That, that, sorry, that's just the, where you can find it online. They have either with permission or not borrowed it from a. BBC series called Coast, which is the kind of thing the BBC puts on. Yeah. Here's a series of, of informative and edifying programs set on coasts. Entry 213.RV0103. Certificate number 17854. The Chicago Seekers. So most of the source for this episode was a was a, a UFO that came to you in the night and told you the whole story. I put on a hat shaped like a pyramid, and uh, I heard about the rising seas in the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. Though there was a you know groundbreaking psychological study done on this cult, which is as you'll recall where we get our uh, notion of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of the study of this psychological phenomenon. But uh, you know the. The psychological report for academic reasons, the, you know, the journal article changes all the names and the settings, and uh, and I was a hard time had a hard time finding the actual newspaper articles uh, that are being referenced in the book, so I couldn't actually settle some of the timelines involved or some of the places that have what pseudonymous names. Uh-huh. But Jeff very helpfully and possibly with a newspapers.com subscription, actually found <laughs> some of the original articles from the Chicago Daily News and the Chicago Tribune. Well done. Um, so if you want to find the, uh, let's see, what's the date? If you if you want to find, I guess this is this was reprinted in the Minneapolis Star. Are these all from the Minneapolis Star? No, this is from the Minneapolis Star of September 24th, 1954. Reprinting the Daily News, and here's one from the um, after the UFOs didn't come from the January first, nineteen fifty five, Chicago Tribune. So you can look all these up. Um, they are full of amazing mainstream predictions or mainstream takes on uh, the burgeoning cult as well as ads for aluminum storm windows <laughs> because it's a Minnesota paper of the 1950s. That's awesome. Uh, Mrs. Martin reports she was told the flood will spread from the Arctic Circle to the Gulf of Mexico, which means, of course, that Minneapolis will be inundated too. So you can tell that the um, the local newspaper inserted notes like that for local readers. Sure, their local take. Per- yeah. Now, this will affect <laughs> Minneapolis. Apparently, maybe the original article said that Chicago will be inundated too, and for the star, that got changed to Minneapolis. At the same time, she said, a cataclysm will submerge the West Coast from Seattle, Washington, to Chile in South America. Mrs. Martin, a small, intense woman with black hair worn into mud, admits she's encountered skepticism. Thank you so much. I love old newspapers, Jeff. Thank you for bringing these to our attention. JD mentions a UFO event also of the 1950s fad, that had even more wide-ranging effects in popular culture, um, a group called the Inter- the International Flying Saucer Bureau declared that March 15, 1953 would be World Contact Day. Did they talk to the UFOs before declaring Well, that's that? the thing. How can you decide what World Contact Day is? Surely the Vulcans or whoever, or the Greys, decide when they're going to contact you. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I, um, I don't know if I've ever told you about my walk across Europe. No. Wait, you've walked across Europe? Yeah, I'm afraid so. But at one point along the way, I started to say uh, to God, hey, I'm here if you want to uh, reach out. You know, like I'm, I'm doing a very ascetic thing here. Every morning I wake up, I put on my hair shirt, I flog myself down the road. At night, I'm all alone out in the forest sleeping with my head on a rock. This, I'm like prime. Um, You're epiphany material. Yeah, like. I'm I'm very accessible, uh, 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 God. At your earliest convenience, uh, 
Give me a ring. Sure, like t- tap on the shoulder. And then along the way, I started to visit all the little abandoned chapels and sit in the cathedrals on hot afternoons and stare up at the at the ceiling. And I was like, look, I know there are a lot of people looking for God, have for a long time, but I feel like I'm a very good candidate. What percentile do you feel you were at that point? Well, the thing is that as a doubter, right, as a science mm, that, doubter. That does take some points away. Well, no, I would think it would make me the perfect one to, because, you know, I'm the one that's going to be like, whoa, you guys aren't going to believe it. Like, I'm not some religious kook. But if God successfully persuades people of your ilk, then his presence will be so well understood and well known that uh, faith will no longer be necessary. Oh, right. It's the whole faith conundrum. He right. would, he can't, he can't. Um, ah, that's such a. He can't call too much attention to himself. Such a, well, Ouroboros. It's a huge Ouroboros. <laughs> anyway, so. Um, well, here's how. So you, I understand the logic of saying like, it's World Contact Day. No, no, no. Well, they had a plan. Oh. And much like you did, you know, as, as you would continually pray, uh, these UFO believers were, of course, believers in telepathy. So they all decided they would meditate on the same text, a, a message of peace and welcome to the aliens. Um, presumably, if you could get enough people meditating on the same welcoming the aliens text, then the aliens would have no choice but to show up. Because if they're this more advanced that, than us, they have telepathy. This is that quantum metaphysics again. And guess what the text was called? It began with the words, calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Is it a, are, the, are those REM lyrics? <laughs> Close. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the lyrics were later borrowed for the Canadian band Klaatu. Uh-huh. Otherwise best known for um, having really only um, become noticed because of rumors that they were the reunited Beatles in disguise. Klaatu. Which is always a good thing to spread about your band, but it's going to lead to disappointment. Yeah. If you're... We're the reunited Beatles in disguise. Maybe. We're not super good live. <laughs> good night. <laughs> but have you not heard the song? It was covered and became a minor hit for the Carpenters. Have you never heard the Carpenters song? Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. That really sounds like Guided by Voices. I don't know... I don't, it does know. Kind of, <laughs> I don't know whether it's a little out I of character it. for the Carpenters. Yeah, I think. No, I I don't know if I know that tune. But uh, let's see. I believe the Carpenters version charted. Am I wrong? Mm, number nine in the in the UK. So the least. song was written by Klaatu. Yes, it's a cover of a song by a lesser known band. But the Carpenters had a bigger hit with it, and the whole thing was inspired by. World Contact Day, nineteen fifty-three, which apparently spoilers failed because oh, cool. the, the aliens did not come on March fifteenth. Failed, or, as far as you know. Well, maybe you know, just like the seekers were always like, well, maybe they came in a symbolic way, or right. maybe it was, the whole thing was just a test, and the real World Contact Day is coming. They waited. Uh, they waited for a little while, and they took Bo Peep with them when they left. But the thing about it is that their sense of time and our sense of time are. It might have just been a snap of a fingers to them. To them, it's still March 15th, 1953. Well, in hopes of not repeating this, the movement for the 50th anniversary on March 15th, 2013, they decided to hold World Contact Week, thinking this would increase their chances by seven of actual contact. Um, Sadly. Also, same result. Failed again. Entry 548.MT1344. Certificate number 52348. The Great Diamond Hoax. This was about the um, the con artists sprinkling diamonds on the ground, salting salting the earth with diamonds in hopes of perpetrating a real estate scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, a listener named Dave points out, have you ever been to Craters of Crater of Diamonds State Park in Arkansas? I haven't. Do you know the gimmick of Crater of Diamonds State Park in Arkansas? I don't. I mean, I don't need to reply that all state parks need a gimmick. Is it a place where, uh, like, a, a meteor hit the earth and it created a bunch of uh, crystals? Close. The crater is volcanic. Okay. Um, but that is a place where a variety of minerals and semi-precious stones and diamonds right. can form and be found. And at Crater of Diamonds, you can actually... Spend your day searching a 37-acre field, which is an old volcanic crater. You can bring your own mining equipment as long as it's by hand, or or, or the park will rent you a pickaxe, and you can keep what you find. Whoa. You can keep uh, white, brown, or yellow diamonds, as well as amethyst, garnet, jasper agate, quartz, and other rocks and minerals. 
Anything good? Anybody ever come out of there with a with a, a truly great gem? More than 33,000 diamonds have been found by park visitors. I'm on their website. Since 1972, notable diamonds found at the crater include the 40.2-carat Uncle Sam, the largest diamond ever unearthed in the U.S. Other amenities include walking trails, picnic sites, uh, and a gift shop. And Diamond Springs Water Park, which is a great place to cool off after a summer of digging for diamonds. You know how it is after you've been... You're, you've, you're, you've got Welsh ancestors. After a hard day of mining, you just want to go down a water slide. Oh, it's there. A few it's, times. it's by Murfreesboro, Arkansas. It is. You know, every one of these states down there has got a Murfreesboro. I don't know who Murfree is. Murfree? Why do they spell it like that, for one thing? Murfreesboro. Is it Murfree's Law that you can't spell Murphy correctly if you're from the South? I don't know. I heard that they canceled uh, Bonnaroo. They did cancel Bonnaroo. Because uh, Murfreesboro was, what, underwater, or was it tornadoes, or caught on fire? Yeah, it wasn't COVID. It was... Full of diamonds? It was the flooding, I think. Yeah. Uh, Look, I think all these places are named for Hardy Murphree, a North Carolinian who fought in the Revolution. Oh, Revolution. Turns out Uncle Sam Diamond was originally 40 carats. Um, what was it, crap, so they had to cut it down? Then they then they they uh, they cut it down to a 12 and a half carat emerald cut diamond. And um, I don't know. Let's see what it, oh, $150,000. Still, that'll pay for the vac- That'll pay for the plane tickets to Murfreesboro. Sure. Have you ever been to one of these places where you can just kind of wander with your kids and keep what you find? No, but I but my daughter is very into gems and yeah. uh, precious stones. Kids and, love this stuff. And so I on this recent trip across the country, I actually looked into uh, places that we could go pan for gold or look for fossils or uh, she likes those agates. Um, I'm sure that's how you say it. And uh, and it just never quite panned out for us that at any point in time when we had a when we had an hour ah it did not pan out for us that's right all we had was we ended up with fool's Wait, gold does that expression mean yeah it does does that where it comes from yeah oh. panning out is does your gold claim pan out meaning do, do you find do you find enough stuff in your pan to pay for it right there's a place in uh utah where my brother took his kids called topaz mountain uh where you can keep all the oddly topaz yeah that you can find and is Topaz worth the effort? I mean, it's pretty, right? It's, it's for kids. Did I ever tell you this? There was this, used to be this place by Green Lake here in Seattle where they just, it was like a storefront, but they just carpeted a room and covered the floor with like a couple inches of polished rocks. And so kids could just kind of wander around in it and keep a bag full. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. We, we paid whatever, whatever you have to pay to let the kids wander around in it. It's and so- then not enough to keep a bag. And the kids are still bitter to this day. You took us to Scratch Patch and didn't let us keep a bag, and then it closed. Because it turns out that's a terrible business idea. Scratch Patch. Scratch Patch. It feels like those, uh, I was looking at some old videos and and um, saw the Easter egg hunt that happened at Cal Anderson Park when my daughter was four years old, where they just, you know, it's a it's a park with no trees. Yeah, it's they don't just, hide them. And they're just eggs all over. They just put them in the field. And it's like, okay, kids, well, go it's basically it's a land rush. Uh, it's like right. an Oklahoma sooner total thing. survival of the fittest situation. Like try and elbow as many other kids out of the way as you can and fill up your bastic. Just flying forearms. That's the true spirit of Easter. It really, it really is. Or like those stores that you know. There was this one down here in Burien that uh, was a Lego store that you went in and it was just giant bins. And oh yeah. Scoop it all into, and half of the Legos smelled like cigarettes or, you know, had been used. To make bongs or butt plugs, yeah, and so, but you know, it's cheap, cheap Legos. How, what would you do for cheap Legos? I'd do anything for cheap Legos. I know you would. Entry seven eight six dot lk zero one six one, certificate number two one eight three one, middle initials. I have to say that on our recent uh, certificates from Commonwealth of Kentucky, yours prominently features your. My kind of hilarious middle name. middle name. My serial killer middle name. And uh, my great middle name, Morgan, it's fine. was left off of it entirely. It's going to be fine because we're not going to display the two certificates next to one another. I guess we could. I think you should take yours home and put it in the bathroom next to your, next to your Esperanto poster. And <laughs> I'll, I'll put mine on my wall of shame next to all of my participation trophies. The... Um 
we mentioned presidential initials in there, you mm-hmm. know, because no president had a middle name except for John Quincy Adams for like the first century of the Republic. And then they pretty much all have. We heard from so many smarts, Stephen and Christopher and so many others who were annoyed that we did not mention Truman. Oh. But, but you know the story about Truman's Harold middle S. Initial. Truman. S means simple man. S means nothing. <laughs> it's just an S. It's just an S. The S is short for S. Harry S. Truman. He had two grandparents with different S names, a Solomon and a ship, I think, if memory serves, uh-huh. I think you'll find. And uh, I, I, I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to start saying, I think you'll find. I think you'll find. A lot on the show. That's the new name for Omnibus. <laughs> Uh, and as a compromise between these two grandparents, who probably hated each other. Right. Uh, he just was Harry Estruman. Harry Estruman. This is the kind of thing. He was just a humble haberdasher. He was. Yeah. The kind of thing we didn't mention, I think, because we thought it was, um, you know, pr- smart guy 101. Sure. We both knew it and just didn't need to say it. We didn't need to say it. Uh, Stephen, Christopher, and others who complained. <laughs> but I, I actually did make a mistake of fact in the very same breath, so I can't really... Seemed like too much of a smart. What was your actual mistake? Of I said that William McKinley was the last U.S. president to not have a middle name. In fact, his successor, Teddy Roosevelt, did not have a middle name and was the last American president. T.R. didn't have a middle have name. Uh, no, he did not. Huh. And uh, Zach wrote in to point out that Teddy Roosevelt was Teddy Roosevelt Jr. because his dad was Theodore Roosevelt. But because of your, you know, you do the shifting time scale where as soon as a Right. Senior dies, the junior becomes the senior. Right. Which I think is anarchy. The yeah, Roosevelts maybe. believed in it as well. Oh, here, here. Because when Theodore maybe Roosevelt Sr. died, uh, they all, if you look up Teddy Roosevelt Jr., they all refer to President Roosevelt's son as Theodore Roosevelt Jr., even though in conventional terms he would have been Theodore Roosevelt III. Sure, we know it well. We've talked about the Roosevelts many times. Maybe that's just because yeah, we've talked about the generations of Kermits. To yeah. this day, there's a Theodore Roosevelt V who is. Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt, senior. He, yeah, now, now he's just the only Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I may, I wonder if the real Teddy Roosevelt the third got junior because the second one was so famous. He kind of erased the memory of the first. Oh, one. Oh, sure. He wanted to be a junior because he's like, nin, nin, nin. That, I'm not some third. I'm not like some grandkid of TR. If you've ever talked to my dad for more than thirty seconds, you're talking about Kenneth Wayne Jennings, Junior. Junior. He will uh, point out that he's actually senior to me, and he doesn't like that he's Kenneth Jennings Jr. And you're Ken Jennings. And I'm Ken Jennings. It implies right. that I'm my own grandpa, you know, that, right. he's, that he's the, the child that's the father to the man or whatever. Right. Um, so. You could be Kenneth Wayne Jennings Mick Jr. I don't know what you would, what, how he would rename himself. Junior to, Jr. Because there's, there's nothing before senior. You know, he can't be, I guess he could be like, like original Coke. He could be like original recipe, Ken Jennings. He could be the queen mum. That's true. Yeah. Just call him queen mum from now on and see how he likes it. The Ken mum. Maybe, maybe he'll go back to being Ken Jr. Stop complaining. Neil wrote in to point out that he had just learned after not understanding, uh, do you, have you ever known anybody who goes by Trey? Yeah. Uh, one of the early... Uh, managers of my band, the Western State Hurricanes, was named Trey. Was it actually his name or was it a nickname? <clears throat> it's interesting. I've known, now that I think about it, a, a handful of trays. A tray full of trays. And I don't know if any of them had real names. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it should be <laughs> Not Not one you cared to inquire about. But they all spelled it T-R-E-Y. But did you know that, like, I always think of that as a preppy nickname. Yeah. But it's it's for someone who is the third and it's too oh, cool to say so. Oh, how interesting. Trey, sure. If you're um, well, what about, Bartholomew Pierpont III, you go by Trey. What about Trey Cool, um, the, uh, the member of uh, California's pop punk superstars, Green Day? Yes, he was actually the third. The third cool. The third cool. <laughs> <laughs> there are only three people in the band, so that makes sense. Neil moved from, um, Neil points out that he did not know a single train until he moved to the Carolinas, and he thinks of it as a Southern thing. Oh. But I thought of it as a New England preppy the thing. The thing is, this, there is no one preppier than people in the Carolinas. Interesting. The, the Southern, we've talked about this with the preps. Like, the Southern preps are so, so much preppier than the Northern preps. What would you call them? Like, pre- prep, preppers and Davis? Yeah, that's it. All you have to do is drive around the University of Alabama or the University of Mississippi, and you'll see more popped collars and more 
more boat shoes. I guess if the core of prep is whiteness. Yeah, there it then is. <laughs> what, what you, if you really want to find somebody who's interested in accentuating that aesthetic, you got to cross the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, I mean, I up in up in Massachusetts now, they've got uh, people of all kinds. I apologize to our Southern listeners. Um, especially because if you're hearing this, you gave to the Patreon. And the last thing I should be doing is implying that you live in a in a white nationalist part of the country. No, no, no. All of our Southern listeners are living in uh, what would be the alluvial tide flats of what used to be the South, because they're, <laughs> they're all futurelings. And If they live there in our era, they're certainly crammed into the one congressional district that has been gerrymandered <laughs> to, um, to elect a, um, a, a, a Democrat and probably an African-American one. Right. Um, you live in the correct part of your state. Thank you. I'm pretty sure that it, that in the future, the the coast of Alabama is right there around Huntsville. Yeah, where would it be? Have you? I've never done the map there of like, if you get the full 12 feet or whatever it is, 22 feet. If the poles were gone, how much of uh, how much of Alabama do you lose? The water's going to come up a little ways. I gotta <laughs> say, um. not looking good for anybody who enjoyed the. Uh, the mobile, uh, what, what was the show about? The the mobile cuttlefish tide or whatever it's called. <laughs> I mean, Hunts, Huntsville's pretty close to Nashville, but it's on the Tennessee River. So the water might, uh, the water might make it up that far, right? Great news. Swamp them. Great. It's revenge for all the, the cuttlefish <laughs> they got at. That's the thing. That's the swampers. The swampers are up there. And, For Muscle Shoals? Yeah, Muscle Shoals. It's going to be swampier than ever. Well, and they're going to be literal Muscle Shoals up there. They're going to be har- harvesting mussels. Finally. Off of the shoals. The final note about initials came from Dallas, who uh, on Twitter wanted me to answer this question. What was it with middle initials, or actually um, first initials? You know, because we talked about people like... Uh, 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 J. J. Paul Getty oh, sure, and right. uh, you know the C. people. C. Calvert Knutson, <laughs> right? C. Thomas Howell, right? We heard from someone who was very annoyed that we didn't mention E. Gary Gygax. Am oh, I saying e. that Gary right? Gary Gygax, yeah, the, absolutely. Uh, the founder Dungeons of and Dragons. Dragons. Um, his name even sounds like the 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 dragon god he has sold his soul to. Yeah, but the problem is that only nerds call him E. Gary Gygax. We all just say Gary Gygax. I just thought of it as Gary G- I had to be reminded that there was an E. Yeah. What's what's so embarrassing that he had to go by Gary? What is the E for in E. Gary Gygax? Um, uh, uh, it's not going to be a cool experience name. Experience points. It's not going to be Ernest. a cool name. Well, Ernest is a cool enough name. It's but, cooler than Gary. But not at the time. Right, 1977, there's no cooler name than Gary. You got Gary Coleman. Yep. You got, got Gary, Gary Busey. Maybe. Not he, quite. He was, he was still an Oscar nominee, then he wasn't off the rails yet. Uh, in 1977, was Gary Busey already a... Uh, when did Buddy Holly Story come out? 78? Stage and screen? Buddy Holly Story might be 78. I think you're right. Gary um, Glitter. Gary, still, still beloved and had not right. done a single thing wrong, probably. <laughs> right. Uh, Gary Indiana. When did, that, when did that band come out? Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Gary, there's another Gary in pop music at the time. Gary. Gary. Moore? I don't know. You have to be kind of a guitar nerd, right? To uh... I guess, but I am one. Gary's in Gary's rock, rock music. Is the plural of Gary Y-S or I-E-S? So, yeah, Gary Glitter, unfortunately, is right at the top there. Um, in fact, Gary Glitter is is pretty deep down. Uh, Gary Wright. What band? He's a, a, a an R&B singer. Mm. Go Gary Puckett. That's what I'm thinking of. There's Gary your 70s Puckett. Gary. Gary Puckett and the Union a- Gap. And Gary U.S. Bonds. Okay, you're getting into it now. Yeah. I, I knew Gary Lewis and the Playboys wasn't the one I was trying to think of. Gary Puckett. Um, he, no, his question was about, so there's many people who have, it's, it's a, uh, uncommon, it's less common, but you've got these A. Whitney Brown style people, W. Somerset Mom. Right. Who put the initial first. And he wants to know, what is the deal with the FBI, the Nixon era FBI that everybody did this? You Because you got J. Edgar Hoover, you got W. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat. You've got um, some of the Watergate plumbers, yeah, right? Like yeah, e. Yeah. Howard yeah. Hunt and e. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon, G. Gordon Liddy. Liddy. Why was it a, Why was that a signifier of, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm throwing this open to the... I think of this as as being a very Beltway, like, you know, 70s Beltway culture influenced me a lot because that was 
I was just old enough to be reading Time magazine and really interested in the three-piece suits of the mid-century. Or I'm sorry. Plus the, your dad. And my dad, right. I mean, that's why I was interested in it. And so I have a tremendous respect for anybody that if you were, if you went by uh, K. Wayne Jennings, I think I would have ceded you the keys to the kingdom a long time ago. The only reason I'm putting up any resistance to your global domination is that you're Ken instead of K. K. Wayne. But I'm looking up, like, but I'm looking up the 92nd Congress. 1971 and 1973. Crazy lapels, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking to see if anybody does the first initial middle name and nobody... Oh, there's one. There's one senator, J. Glenn Beale, Republican, Maryland. Everybody else is doing the mid-century IBM board thing of Henry M. Jackson. Right. Uh, Fred R. Harris. So G. Gordon Liddy's but first the, name is George, a perfectly good name. George Gordon, like Lord Byron. George Liddy. What's I, wrong with George Liddy? I'm in the house now, and I do not see leading initials. So it must have been something about E. Uh, e. Howard Hart's name is Everett, but with a T, with an extra T E. Everett. Here's one: J. William Stanton of Ohio. But it just seems to be much more common in these kind of law enforcement slash law breaking circles. Yeah. Do you think it's all an imitation of J. Edgar Hoover? Maybe. Like there was like that became that became bureau culture. Maybe. J. Edgar Hoover is just John. John Hoover is a fine name. Do you think it's Even less remarkable? John Edgar. Maybe the problem is if at some point in your life you've decided to go by Edgar. Let's say let's say there's multiple Johns in his family. You know? Right. That's that was true of a lot of, you know, his dad was John Morris, he was John Edgar. So everybody called him Edgar. And once you are going by your middle name, then your full name cannot be John E. Hoover or right. even John Edgar Hoover. Right. You can't go Edgar Hoover because you're in the FBI. You need to have the full truth right there. J. Edgar Hoover. You know, I am seeing more in Congress at the time. G. William Whitehurst, Virginia. J. Edgar Hutchinson of Michigan. So we needed somebody to actually run the data and see if it was more common in the FBI than it was in the rest of government at the time. I don't know. the That's an interesting, interesting question, Dallas. Thank you for posing it. Um, I wonder... Oh, yeah. J. Howard McGrath was... Uh, Attorney General at a certain point in the mm. in the Truman era. It's a little earlier. Yeah. Well, this is a real good. This is a real good topic. This is what you're going to spend the afternoon on. I think. I feel, I feel like I am. I wonder what it would take for me to start going by J. Morgan Roderick at this age. I think it's too late, but I if, like if, it more it, and it more. Possibly, it could be wanting to be harder to Google. Yeah, W. Mark Felt. That's right. That's kind of bad. I don't think W. Mark Felt is very good at all because his first name's William. There's so many initials, so many nicknames for William. The problem with that is his brief his his initial is three times as long as his one syllable middle name. The W just overwhelms the mark. Yeah, it's comic. Or he could do the W M period, like no oh, Mark Felt. like he's signing the Declaration of Independence. I think that's a much better way to go. I want that to come back. <sighs> Entry 1323.SS0701, certificate number 31961, the town of Bent Necks. This is about the rivalry between um, Adidas and uh, Puma. Two, two Nazi brothers. <laughs> In the town of Herzogerzgerzgerz, Germany. Yeah, that's right. Herzogerzgerzgerz. Which to this day, I think is still the head, is, is it right? Still the headquarters of Adidas and Puma. That's right. And I think right across the river from one another. And I think you and I were trying to think of American examples of a town where, you know, it, it would be like if what if McDonald's and Burger King were both headquartered in, you know, we're both council started by Nazi brothers and yeah, <laughs> on either side of the river. And I could not think of good examples. And yet there are good ones. Michael, I believe. Am I getting this right? Yes, Michael sent in the most obvious example which is Battle Creek, Michigan, where both Kellogg and Post breakfast cereal empires are, uh, or were headquartered, although I think Post has been bought out by... Monsanto. Somebody else. Um, Probably some European Some international conglomerate, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, But to this day, they both have presences there, and they were both manufactured there for decades. And do you know the story, Uh, you know... uh, Of why? Yeah, of why they're both there. Uh -uh. Kellogg 
ran a sanitarium there because he thought that eating crisped uh, oats or whatever it is would yeah be good for your mental health and make you stop touching yourself or whatever. Sure, allow and, you to conjure ancient Lumerians. And uh, Post was actually a patient at his sanitarium oh. and coincidentally decided to market some of the same ideas. So probably a c- case of early uh, industrial espionage, I guess. <laughs> right. Or at least copycatting Kellogg's uh, products. I mean, Detroit, Michigan, I guess, is the is the, oh, that's true. the great example, right? Why are all the car companies in Detroit, Michigan? They're all right there. Ernest points out a more interesting one, which has been a... So a little less known, but maybe more so now that it's been a story on NPR's Planet Money. I guess Sellersville, Pennsylvania, uh, is, is where both Bartles and James and California Coolers. <laughs> <laughs> no, two different handbell companies. Really, yes. competing handbell companies. Uh, it's from a Planet Money show called Bell Wars, which. A lengthy feud between two companies that make different Malmark and Shulmerick mm-hmm. making their warring they can never do it right um, but apparently it it's a, it was a Christmas show back in twenty fourteen so I think it ends with peace on earth between Malmark and Shulmerick. but there you go. those are your two American stories and Detroit, I guess That's Detroit right I mean. They're all, I guess they each have their own little town. There's Seattle with um, Nordstrom's and Amazon, the two places you can buy things. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's uh, there's like San Jose, California with Apple and, Apple and, Apple and Google. Or, I mean, those are kind of a little bit diluted because, you know, one's in Mountain View, one's in Cupertino, one's in Redwood Shores, one's in, you know, so they're probably in the city limits of different places. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true of Detroit too. I don't know. Uh, well, the, it's, there's Seattle's best coffee. There's where's, where's that located? There's there's Starbucks coffee. There's the best coffee of Seattle. There's coffee Seattle coffee Seattle. Yeah, I don't know. How did we get that? How did we even become? We're like the furthest from the equatorial regions from which you would need to get your beans. It was just that we are in desperate need of it. Dark and cranky. Yeah. Entry five one four dot pp zero two zero three. Certificate number 25968. Games Buddha wouldn't play. This is the portion of the Addenda Show where we catch up with Essowit, our uh, adopted baby elephant from the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust in Kenya. Oh, how's uh, Essowit doing? Well, I don't know. I'm about to go to the website and find out. Okay. Uh, he has not been, he doesn't call. Right, right. Uh, I, I my email settings might be sending his emails to a different inbox. I heard from a lot of people about games Buddha wouldn't play because everyone was speculating. You know, everybody wants to throw up a game, see if Buddha would play it, and uh, and I've got a message board on Discourse where people were debating the various games Buddha would or wouldn't play. It really boils down to some pretty easy. Um, some litmus tests, you know. Theology is tricky. Does the game have a ball? Well, Buddha wouldn't play it. Well, here I'm looking at the updates on the various elephants. I don't know if um, is this the same update we read last month? I can't. Re- <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah, you can pick a different, actually different day, and it'll tell you what the latest is on. Essowit, do we have like what Essowit was doing yesterday? It has the it has the details. Yeah, you can actually get um, semi daily updates. For example, pick a pick a day in August. August eleventh. On August eleventh, um, Roho and Essowit were keeping each other company in the afternoon, and Nabuishi was busy moving around between everyone, and Shikru was calmly browsing near Zawadi, Rama, and her little fan, Naleku. Well, that's what only makes a bit of a cameo appearance there. We just know he's hanging out with Roho. Um, oh, from August 24th, here's a good one. Um, each day, Esowit has grown in confidence. Uh, he's a confident bull and extremely playful. Once the orphans were back in the field after their three o'clock bottles on milk, 
bottles of milk. Uh-huh. Esowet once again started a new game with Nabuishu and Naleku. As Nabuishu and Naleku were enjoying a dust bath, Esowet kept trying to climb on their backs. Oh, that nut. And Nabuishu always seemed to love these games with the younger orphans, as he never complains. They were soon joined by Olorian, who began to roll around with them. You know, this is great because Esowet's the newest rescue there, and he lost his mom. Yeah. Um, he's having a rough time of it this year, and I'm really glad. He's, it's nice that they're that they're not only accepting him, but really like bringing him into the gang. Here's what happened on August 28th. As the orphans were running down for their midday bottles of milk, Nabuishu and Esuit were let down together, and boy, did they make a noise as they ran down. Tell me more. Both could be heard rumbling and trumpeting as they ran down, and they seemed to get louder when they are let down last. <laughs> I can see that if they think mm-hmm. that other... Like, I have a dog that'll always get mad if you pet the other dog. Mm-hmm. I've even, been there. Even when they got to their keepers, they continued to yell out until they were drinking their milk. Once they had finished their bottles... They ran off over to the mud bath and didn't make any more noise. This is very relatable to me. Relatable content. I want to know who's writing the story because I've, I'd like to read more from them. Uh, well, uh, all you need to do is sponsor an elephant at the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, as um, Omnibus now has, thanks to one of our listeners. And I, I went and made my own donation because I felt a little bit bad that, uh-huh. that some listener was loving elephants more than me. Uh-huh. Um, and so then you can get exclusive updates on specific specific elephants. Although it all seems to be a month in the past. I was trying to find September stuff, and right now it ends in August, so maybe it gets released a month at a time. Well, anyone that keeps a journal knows that it, you know, you get behind. Thank you, Meg, for um, helping us adopt Esowit. Um, we'll, we'll keep you updated on Esowit's doings, unless something really sad happens, in which case... It'll probably be a huge bummer ending for the addenda. We will not. We will not tell you. <laughs> we'll just leave it we'll out. Just say Esowit went to a farm upstate or something. Yeah. But Esowit's doing very well and gets very cranky if he doesn't get his milk on time. Well, you know, Esowit and I have a lot in common, and that is only one of the things I also like to have a dirt bath. You trumpet when you don't get your tweet, your I, treat, mm-hmm. and after you do, you stop trumpeting and roll happily in the mud. Mm-hmm. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 23. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.